1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2.
0: Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the Apostle Peter and the lessons he has for us. We pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would open these scriptures to us that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, our coming King, in whose name we commit this time. Amen. Okay, we are exploring the epistles of Peter. And these are colorful epistles because here's one of the most colorful characters in the New Testament. Of all the disciples, the one we all, I think, feel the most comfortable with is this character we call Peter, Simon Peter. And uh, so we enjoy his... Uh, antics all through the Gospels. Sometimes right and sometimes wrong, but always colorful. And uh, so uh, he's written two letters. And he also had two events in his life that really seemed to have impressed him. The encounter, encounter, if you will, at uh, Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. And the other one that will dominate his thinking in the second letter was the Transfiguration. Those two events are obviously very much on his mind, and they lie just under the text all the way through. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's just jump right on in. He continues saying, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings. Now you may recall we touched on this verse in the last session because we had chapter 1, but we... Pick this one verse just to bridge. So we've talked about this last time. The wherefore, of course, ties this verse to the previous chapter. And understand the chapter divisions were 13th century editions. So the scripture uh, endured for a long time without chapters and verses. Uh, Stephen Langton is credited with having divided it in the way that we know it today. So don't uh, uh, let the chapter divisions... Don't presume that they're necessarily the best place. They're they're adequate probably. But there's many times you want to sort of ignore the chapter divisions and realize they're bridges all the way through. So this derives from the previous chapter. And uh, repentance is called for here. Uh, Peter now lists five sins of attitude and speech. Boy, how much of our life really is impacted by our attitude and especially our speech. That uh, that covers a multitude of our report card right there. And so it's the sins of attitude and speech that divide. One His, con- his concern here, Peter's concern, is how it, dri- it drives a wedge between us as believers in our churches, in our fellowships. And uh, so he's saying the first one, laying aside all malice. Well, that sounds pretty good. What does that really mean? Well, the Greek verb here expresses, it's used in the sense of Getting rid of a garment, taking off your coat, or whatever. Putting off all malice. Like, what he's really saying, putting off the old self, to use what you might say, uh, you know, a Pauline phrase. That's the way Paul would probably express it. The word malice there, is wicked ill will. That's a pretty straightforward word. I think we have a feeling for that. It involves the desire to inflict pain, harm, or injury on our fellow man. So malice includes intent. Not just injury, but intent, if you will. Okay, so, and I want you to notice all is in here three times. All malice, all guile, all evil speakings. In other words, no exceptions. As we talk about each one of these things, Peter is suggesting that we should get rid of all of it, not allow any of this in our lives. Laying aside all malice, if you will. And all guile, how does guile differ from malice? Well, guile is deceit. It's deliberate dishonesty falsehood, craft, seduction, slander, treachery. And uh, in practical terms, it's the opposite of being a fiduciary. Now, that's a term that you probably don't normally use. It is used among lawyers. It's used among executives of large corporations because a manager or a director is the fiduciary of the shareholders, all of them, not just their constituent interest. In other words, if a certain stockholder group puts you on the board, your duty isn't just to them, it's to all the shareholders. and you, you have to put the interests of the corporation ahead of your own. That's what the word fiduciary means. That's the relationship between a doctor and a patient. That's the relationship between an attorney and a client, and so on. Fiduciary. And that becomes very important when you study Ephesians 6 and other passages because as an employee of a company in general, our duties involve giving 60 minutes work for 60 minutes paid. You work from 8 to 5, your duties expire at 5 o'clock. They don't pick up again till 8 o'clock next morning. That's if you're a normal employee. If you're a manager or a director, you're a fiduciary even in your off hours. You're required to look out for the interests of that corporation if you're a manager or director. Protecting their shareholder list, protecting their trade secrets, that sort of thing. Well, if you are a regular employee, that may not apply to you unless you're a Christian. But Paul points out that if you're a Christian, you own your employer a fiduciary responsibility. And that's a, that's a concept that's not widely taught, but needs to be. That, uh, because Paul talks about your, your obligations to your master. Bear in mind, they had a, a different economy. We have employees and employers. Um, but the point is, is that uh, you can study that in Ephesians 6 if you want to get into it. But uh, this is guile is the opposite of being a fiduciary. And uh, so, now deceit and, hypocr- uh, and hypocrisies are twins. By deceit, a person is wronged, but by hypocrisy, he is deceived. They're very, very closely related. Hypocrisies and envies. Uh, hypocrisies, the uh, uh, pretended piety and love. Pretending to be what one is not. A man with a double heart and a lying tongue, in other words. And Jesus quoted Isaiah to the Pharisees in this regard, by the way. That uh, beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and so on. The word envy is a, a, uh, a different kind of a word. It's resentful discontent. Uh, both hypocrisy and envy appear to be plural in the Greek, by the way. In the Greek presentation here, and it is in the English translation also, they're in the plural. Hypocrisies. Envies. It's not just a singular thing. It's a collection of these things. Okay. And all evil speakings. Now, I'm not going to repeat what we did last time. We touched on well, This is all by way of review because we took this first verse in the last session. And under evil speakings, we did a little uh, sidebar, if you will, on the most painful sin. Of all the sins, what's, the mo- what's caused most pain on the planet Earth? My suggestion, the possibility, is that it's gossip. Slander. That's probably caused more pain than any one of the other sins. And that's a matter of opinion, but that's evil speaking slander, or backbiting lies, if you will. And none of these should have any place among those who are born again. We are not to gossip. You understand how Christians gossip You know, in order that you pray, you you can pray more carefully for so-and-so, let me tell you what's really going on so that you can pray for him more. Baloney. Don't pass on gossip. The fact that it's true or untrue is not the issue. It's not the issue. Evil speaking. Rather than that, in obedience to the Word of God, believers should make a decided break with their past. You want to shut that down. Not only do you not pass it along, you don't entertain it. You don't entertain it. So be as eager um, for the nourishment of the word as babies are with the milk, because the next verse, "As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby." S- the sincere, or unadulterated, is what the word really means, milk of the word. It's interesting that Peter here is emphasizing the basics, the milk of the Word. That's in contrast to Paul's letter to the Hebrews, in which he scolds them for limiting themselves to the milk of the Word and not dealing with strong food, the meat of the Word. And I'll leave it to you to go ahead and study what the differences is. And... uh, It's interesting, though, Peter's treating his readers like newborn babes. In other words, their life depends upon the next feeding. That's probably true of all of us. We all need a a continual diet. After believers cast out the impure desires and motives that we talked about in verse 1, they need to feed on wholesome spiritual food that produces growth. The word sincere, unadulterated, if you will, is deliberately contrasted with the word deceit. Get rid of deceit, but replace it with the sincere milk of the word. God's word is not deceive; neither should God's children deceive. God's word is pure. And that's a whole thing to really study, by the way. You might want to collect those verses in Psalm 119 and several other places that emphasize that God's word is straightforward, it's pure, it's without um, uh, mixture. It's, it's straight. And... Uh, That's one of the reasons you want to be cautious about paraphrases. It's very popular today to read, not a translation of the Bible, but a paraphrase of the Bible. And they're comfortable for many reasons. I'm not going to discourage that, but understand the difference. And um, I remember Walter Martin leaning over the pulpit and saying, You would paraphrase God? (laughs) Yeah, you you miss a lot. The paraphrases are readable and they're enjoyable for many devotional purposes probably, but be careful, because they also miss uh, often what God is really saying. Christians should approach the Word with clean hearts and minds, in eager anticipation and a desire to grow. Every time you open your Bible, you should do it with a word of prayer. He continues... Peter says, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And he's quoting here Psalm 34, eight. He continues the, the milk analogy that he started in verse 2. He likened their present knowledge of Christ to tasting. You taste Christ. Interesting expression. Something about Peter, he's real. You know, his feet are on the ground. He tastes the word. And uh, they had taken a sample. They experienced God's grace in their new birth. And found that God is gracious. So you've, you have learned that. If you've, if you've tasted God, you understand what he's talking about here. He continues, To whom coming as unto a living stone. Now that's a strange metaphor, isn't it? A living stone? We don't think of stones as living, do we? Most unliving thing you think. Of, a rock, a stone. No, he's using an idiom here. It's very unusual. To him coming as unto a living stone. And he talks a lot about this stone. And your assignment you can carry away from this morning is to conduct your own study of the Bible from cover to cover. Skim through it with concordance. And notice how often stone or rock is used metaphorically and always of, strangely enough, Christ. Okay? Living stone, disallowed indeed of men. Wasn't Christ rejected by his generation? Absolutely. But chosen of God and is precious. He's gonna. We're gonna elaborate this a little bit. A living stone. Now, one reason this comes up here, and I want to highlight this to you, when you study Matthew 16 and the the uh, encounter at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus says, uh, uh, "You know, whom, whom, whom do men say that I am? Whom do you say that I am?" Peter says, "Thou art the Christ, Son of God." And Je- that's his finest moment, you know. And and Jesus says. Uh, Upon this stone, I will build my church. And all kinds of groups, Catholics in particular, but others have also felt that that refers to Peter as the first pope and that sort of thing. No, he's referring to himself, actually. And the guy that... There's a lot of different views about Matthew 16, what Jesus meant by that. I'm going to suggest that the guide should be Peter. He was there. And he talks about it here. And the stone he's talking about isn't Peter. It's Christ. It's Christ. Okay, and uh, so uh, he, he let's understand it how Peter understood these things. The rock is Christ himself. He's the living stone. And we can be living stones in that we reflect him. Okay, so every believer is also a living stone made such by grace. But the root idiom, the focus idiom, is the rock that is Christ. Paul even says so in 1 Corinthians 10.4. When when we read in Numbers and so forth where they came to the rock in the wilderness and and, uh, the rock was struck by Moses and out came the living water, Paul identifies that as a type by saying that rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4. And it happens twice. The first time he's told to strike the rock and he does and the water comes out. The second time, at Rephidim, Paul... uh, uh, Jesus tells Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses is really upset, so he strikes the rock a second time, and God is upset with him. He calls him aside. You didn't represent me faithfully. You gave them the impression that I was angry. He wasn't angry. And because of that, Moses did not inherit. That's a shocker. He spent 120 years. 40 before he left Egypt, then 40 years in the backside of the desert with Yvonne DiCarlo there and all that. And then 40 years leading through the wilderness. He was 120 years in service. And he's in the penalty box. He dies able to see the promised land but not enter it, which was his inheritance. He didn't get to inherit. Don't feel too sorry for him because he's not through yet. Because he was at the staff meeting in Matthew 17, we call the transfiguration. And I suspect that he's one of the two witnesses. He and Elijah have unfinished business that takes care of in Revelation chapter 11. So he's, he's, he's going to do all right. But the point is, um, it's important to take God seriously. And he didn't follow God's direction. If he had, then the rock, those two rock experiences, would describe the first and second coming. Smitten in the first one and in glory in the second. But anyway, to whom coming, the participle here, the tense and voice, indicate that this coming is a personal, habitual approach. It's an intimate association of communion and fellowship between believers and their Lord. That's when he says, to whom coming. That's what he's talking about here. It's the tense and voice, uh, personal, intimate, habitual. Peter is going to develop and explain this metaphor of the stone in the coming verses. So this, this chapter has a lot to do with what do we mean by this peculiar phrase, a living stone, a living stone. He said the stone's living. It has life in itself and gives life to others. That's why he's using this phrase. Stones don't normally do that. His metaphor does here. And uh, people can enter into personal vital relationships with this living stone. So Peter's going to use this in several different ways as a unique figure of speech. He's going to refer to it as a living hope. In verse, and and he already has, and he's gonna, and he last in the last chapter, he referred to the living word, and here he refers to Christ as the living stone. Now, this stone was disallowed by men, but chosen of God. Christ was disallowed and rejected by men. God had chosen him, that was pointed out in the last chapter, and God held him as precious. Both here and in the past and here and another, in a couple more verses again. And, and chosen and precious. And Christians rejected the, uh, by the world may take heart in the knowledge that they are elect and valued by God. Understand something, by the way. We live in a time where I think we're gonna, many Christians are going to wake up in shock because we're going to be rejected by the world. Christians always have been, but not in our peculiar heritage. For a couple of centuries here, we've had a God-fearing culture that was founded on the Word of God, originally. We've migrated away from that. And Christians here in America are in for a rude shock as they wake up to the reality that if you're a biblical believer, you're going to be politically incorrect. There are all kinds of false religions you can identify with. There's all kinds of apostate churches you can attend. But find a church that preaches the Word of God, that preaches the blood of Christ, etc. You're going to find a few and far between, and if you attend those, you're going to be considered weird. You're one of those fundamentalist nuts. I'll sign up for that label any day. And so, believers identified with Christ, for He is the living, are also considered living stones. If you are identified with Christ and He's a living stone, then you're going to, that's what Peter is, in fact, using that phrase here. And as they become more like Christ, as you be, you become like the thing you worship. Don't forget that. Several times in the Psalms, it points out, you become like what you worship. Is the world cold and unforgiving? You worship the world, you'll become cold and unforgiving, materialistic. Whatever you're worshiping, you'll become like that. That's why it's important to worship Christ, because if you do, you'll become more like him. Because you're being built into a spiritual house, Peter suggests here. Jesus told Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And I personally suspect he was pointing to himself, he was gesturing to himself. Now Peter clearly identifies Christ as the rock on which this church is built, both in the last verse, verse 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 2. Peter called the church a temple and a dwelling. Believers not only make up the church, but serve in it, ministering a holy priesthood and offering spiritual sacrifices. So the analogy is complete. By the way, seven times in the New Testament, it speaks of us as being a temple. You are the temple of God. Well, And that could be simply in the sense, well, he didn't, because the Holy Spirit indwells us as, new, as believers, it may mean much more than that. I believe it, it speaks to the architecture of the human uh, software. Not the hardware. That's, we're going to get rid of that. We're going, to, we're going to have a body transplant here when time comes. But the software architecture is described by the architecture of the temple. It's a great study. I encourage you to get into it. We have a thing called The Architecture of Man that gets into that. My wife's done a book on it, Cueva Agape, that deals with it and so on. All believers are priests, by the way. And that's going to come up here, uh, obviously, in First Peter two nine, but it's also in Revelation four uh, uh, 1 and Hebrews 4 and elsewhere. Believers are priests. In fact, there are three people, only three people in the the Bible, that are priests and kings together. In Israel, kings and priests were separate. Kings of the tribe of Judah, priests of the tribe of Levi, they were separate. Melchizedek was unique in that he was king and a priest, and that would be sort of a technicality except for Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5 and others, where the writer, the Scripture itself, makes a point of the fact that Jesus Christ is a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's three, Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, and who's the third? You and me. We are kings and priests. Peter so describes it here, and it's critical for your understanding of Revelation 5 and on, To understand who the 24 elders are. Because they identify who they they are. Despite a lot of people writing about that get confused, they make it quite clear who they are. They're kings and priests. They are the redeemed. The 24 represent, collectively, the the, the, uh, redeemed. And need no other mediator than Jesus Christ to approach God directly. He's our high priest, in other words. So, uh, we're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, were to offer sacrifices. That's what priests do, by the way, is offer sacrifices. And uh, before the law was given, the, ho- the head of the house was the priest of the house. After we get into the, the, the when they failed into the law, we, it was relegated to the Levitical priests. In the, Mel- in the uh, Millennial Temple, described in Ezekiel 40 through 48, the Levites are relegated to routine service, not being priests at all. Has to be the sons of Zadok, and it's a very different situation there. Interesting to study. But we, we need to give sacrifice to acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And priestly service requires holiness. So if we're going to be a priest, a holy priesthood, we need to aspire to holiness. And praise to God and doing good to others are the spiritual sacrifices we're talking about here. Hebrews 13 deals with that. But we should also be offering ourselves, if you will, as living sacrifices. And Romans, the first two verses of Romans 12 are the classic passages on that. Okay. Peter continues, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, and he's now quoting, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now suddenly this stone idiom is reflected in a little different way. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. What on earth is a cornerstone? Well, it's a keystone. It's a very important stone. Okay. Elect and precious. He that believeth on him, on what? Him, the stone. Who's him? Christ. Shall not be confounded. The chief cornerstone. Now he's quoting from three Old Testament passages. Isaiah 28, verse 6. Psalm 118, 22. Isaiah 8:14 and Isaiah 28:16. Four different times, in um, three times in Isaiah and once in Psalms, we have uh, these quotes where Christ is chosen and precious, and uh, He's the cornerstone. See now, a cornerstone is that visible part which is intended to represent what the whole building. Uh, stands on, if you will. Now, obviously, it's on the corner, but it is representative, then, of the whole building, is the idea. But I, uh, Psalm 118.22 is perhaps the key passage here for a number of reasons I'll come to in a minute. Um, but whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, in the Greek, they have a double negative here. Now, in English, if you have a double negative, it reverses, you know, You can't go there no more. Well, that's not a good example. Anyway, the point is, a double negative is something in in English grammar you want to avoid because it reverses itself. In Greek, it works differently. A double negative is intensive. That means it's really no. You follow me? Negative. Okay. And it's it's here in the subjective mood, which indicates an emphatic negative assertion uh, uh, that uh, refers to the future. Never indeed shall they be shamed, is really what the Greek says, shall not be confounded. Well, never never, indeed, ever, is the way it might have been better translated.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, as you study his word.